0: And just so, out of curiosity, are you recording a side angle on the Komodo? Uh,
1: I can record it. I I just I looked at it and I was like, ah, I probably should and then I ran out of time. Yeah, so yeah if you want me to, I can. I I can stick it in there real quick and hit record.
0: I mean, Go for it. Yeah, that's it, great. It'll take you two seconds. It never <laughs> yeah, hurts. Yeah. Like, what, what do we got to lose? <laughs> but am, am so, I piecing yeah. together right now that you have a Komodo for like your camera webcam? I'm not- <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's I, don't, sick. I don't have
1: anything. I don't have anything else. That's the problem.
0: <laughs> I was... Well, we're definitely going to add
1: that. Yeah. I mean, I could have pulled out the, one of the Alexas, but I <laughs> Light not flex. make any difference.
0: Light flex. One of the Alexas. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Rough Cut Club. I am your host, Joey Nicotra, here with my business partner, friend, and just incredible human being, Mr. Shane Reitzamer. Shane, how are you doing today, man? Great, man. I love that uh, intro. The last part's excellent yeah man great dude, human being you are a really great human being and you've taught me how to be a better human being so we are blessed by your presence today uh, in the studio how, how do friend. they do that is it this there Boom. you go <laughs> that's gonna go great on the story i love it well bro uh dude i am super excited about our guest that we yeah. have today we have a director of photography extraordinaire in our presence blessing us with his wisdom today and we are super excited to announce uh that he has been an emmy award winner no emmy nominated documentary winner uh emmy nominated winner is that a thing any emmy nominated emmy nominated we're gonna be we're gonna call it an emmy nominated documentary winner today along with a feature film creator and someone who has made major network television commercials uh to name a few working for the air force national geographic and even patron tequila welcoming to the show for the very first time andrew barrera thank you for being on the show my friend
1: That was very uh, nice of you. I wouldn't even bring up the Emmy stuff, but <laughs> well, <laughs> like, well, hey, everybody's Emmy nominated. Yeah, so, like, but
0: it's got a nice ring to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not right. everyone could say it, but that's awesome, dude. Well, thank you for being here today, man.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, me
1: podcasts are interesting
0: yes i love it man well we're excited to dig into your story before we do that one of the ways that andrew and i met was actually on a tv show that i do not believe has ever seen the light of day uh and probably will never see the light of day but it was essentially about ex-professional athletes slaughtering hogs on top of trucks with machine guns if i if i got that log line correct oh wow (laughs) That's
1: yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah, This
0: was actually the production where um, Andrew pulled me aside afterwards uh, after being almost shot by bullets by being sent down range and was just like, what the hell are you doing, dude? Like (laughs) you cannot put yourself in a situation like that. But that was a wild production, man.
1: Yeah, I man, I uh, I still talk about that with my friend uh, Julio that came out on that job. So, yeah, because he lives next door to me. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we could go all <laughs> all day into that if you really want. To, yeah, so,
0: well, <laughs> I mean, wise or, oh yeah, yeah dude. They, and the only reason I don't think the production actually—I mean, there's probably a number of reasons, but the the main. Actor, character, person flipped the truck on the production and wound up having to go to the hospital. And so, I don't think it
1: wasn't just it wasn't just any truck. It was a rally uh you know Baja truck. Yeah. Talking Mm. half a million dollar truck. Yeah, this guy's doing a donut in the middle of the night and flip it over and wreck it. Oh. Yeah.
0: This was definitely a wild production, one that I had not been on before, but they were racing like Baja trucks and FPV. It felt like they were doing all these just like throwing all these insane ideas at a wall and whatever sticks like they went for it. And it just it
2: was insane, man. Dang. (laughs) I hope production yeah, thank God for production insurance on that shoot, I imagine
1: I I mean, not to <laughs> not to bad dog anybody, but I you know, I, I don't I don't know. if I'm sure they had production insurance, but mm. yeah, um, I, I I don't think production insurance is going to cover that. Thing. <laughs> um, you were doing what? Right, <laughs> I never I never saw anything come out of that to be honest. But the, I mean, that's that's yeah. like one out of like many times that I shoot stuff that never goes anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that one that one was. Uh, I I bring that particular job up every time we talk about guns on set and safety, and that has come up even more ever since the whole rust.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, because America I had my too. whole
1: theory on that and like who was to blame and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I was really into reading all the uh, stuff with it, but like being, being in the industry, being around guns my whole life and also being on indie film sets, you, you can definitely, get into really hairy situations yeah. and be a complete idiot. And, well, know. and I would love so, to,
0: I mean, even before we get into some of your story, I'd love to know your thoughts on it since it's come up. Like what, where, you know, obviously safety is the number one, you know, thing on set, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on even just that whole situation. If, if you're all right. Talking well, about
1: you know, it. yeah. I mean, uh, even with my experience on uh, some other film sets, I, I could tell you right off the bat that, um, the they were trying to figure out where the round the live rounds ended up, right? Like how all of a sudden live rounds are on the set. And this is only my theory. This is not like obviously something, but you know, I've been on indie film sets where there's guns, lot real guns on set, and after the shoot, maybe on a weekend. You know, they take, the, they take the talent to go or crew to go fire off a couple rounds because guns are cool and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's what everybody treats it. So and I've been on a particular film set in Terra Lingua, It was the same thing. They had a real gun. We go. They went out and shot a couple rounds over the weekend, live rounds at a target range. And then they come back and use those same guns for the set. So I have a feeling something got mixed up in there, and mm. that's the reason why there was a live round in that in that thing. Yeah, I mean that's 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 one. That's my theory because uh, indie indie films can be kind of crazy. Uh, I uh, the other one is you know Alec Baldwin says that uh, man I'm I'm really going into it, but Alec Baldwin's like oh I didn't uh, I didn't pull the trigger. I'm like yeah, but with a revolver that has a hammer. He pulls the hammer back and lets go. It's the same thing as mm-hmm. pulling a trigger. You're yeah. gonna shoot it and it's gonna go off. Yeah. And so there was no like gun safety experience with that. And I yeah. know people that know that AD. And I know you know. So it's yeah. like there was a lot of wrong things that you know, yeah. safety wise that that went through the yeah. You know. And I heard too, like even,
0: yeah, even the whole crew like almost walked or I think they did walk from the production the day before because of all of the unsafe things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And it's just a man that I will say that the, you know, as devastating as that situation that was, I think one of the silver linings to it was that it was a wake up call for all of indie and non-indie filmmakers to prioritize and re put safety back to the top of the equation of film sets because so often it's a neglected thing at the expense of the picture and doing whatever it takes to get the shot. And it is really brought back safety and, and specifically gun safety uh, back into our industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know particularly on our shoot, that was the one in particular where when I asked for clearing the gun and all that stuff, you know, they, they approached me like I was being the high-maintenance one and mm-hmm. like, well, what's wrong? Why don't you trust us? And like, why are you being so high-maintenance? Like, it's fine, you know? And I'm like, I have more, other than the guys that were actually shooting the guns, like the, the, the military guys, I had more experience with firearms than the rest of the crew that was there, plus even the guys that were doing, you know, the sports guys that were doing yeah. the promo for this thing. Yeah. It's like, I've been a hunter my entire life. And like I'm the one that's high maintenance. Come on, give yeah. me a break. You know. Yeah. So, you know.
2: Yeah, it's, I think it's you know the the priority of safety and how it's even done on set, like you're talking about. Because I've been on two different sets, uh, period pieces, and one one leg of the this production was ad with armor walks around and says, "Would you like to see the the chamber, the gun? It's unloaded." Went to everybody on set, and I was kind of green to that, and I was like. Okay, cool. Oh, thank you. I got it. And I was like, this is, this makes me feel good. But then on another project, um, uh, when somebody had asked, same thing. It was like, what? Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to show everybody? You know, and so, you know, we're taking too much time, but I think I totally respected slowing down, let everybody see that the chamber's empty. This gun has been cleared. You know, now we're going to put it into play, into blocking even. Um, Anyways, I agree with that perspective. And you never
1: should be a, Yeah. You should never be afraid to ask. Yeah. I, I, there, there's way more safety involved in car, uh, shoot filming, filming in vehicles than there are with guns half the time. Mm. And I'm a, you know, I am a gun owner and I go hunting, but like it is, it's, it's kind of, it's backwards. And I think it's because a lot of people in the film industry think that guns are super cool. Cars have been around forever and you know, they don't take that as seriously as what a gun is. And, uh, so even that particular job was a big wake up call I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and- for even me to like okay, we got to you got to check these things and don't be yeah. afraid to do it because most people don't want to be labeled that high maintenance DP and it's like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. And you good- shouldn't you sh- nobody should die on set. It's- no. <laughs> no, and just
0: for like total like context for everyone listening to, we were sent 5 miles downrange so mm-hmm. that they could try to hit the world's largest like or world's longest target. And they sent us i think within like 50 to 70 feet of the target and a bullet landed like six or seven feet in front of me which if you think about the angle that it has to be coming down like it was just a couple of feet over my head um, and almost grazed yep. me multiple times uh, and we were ducking behind a truck like for safety trying to get a shot and it was just it was really wild uh, had no idea I what can't, i
1: can't believe you did that
0: yeah, well i I, I, <laughs> so, I didn't know what i was signing up for when i went down there my yikes you. anyway
1: i don't um, even think i knew that you were down there because i would have told you no you yeah
0: know, so. yeah well oh. they should have just set gopros up and us like hiked back like <laughs> right a mile back, away right. but Anyway, man, yeah, uh, dude. On the note of safety, I was watching in your reel, and a car flipped and almost hit you, dude. Tell me about yep. that.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. That was a also a show that never went to air. <laughs> there
0: seems to be a recurring Before, pattern.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I get on the dangerous things. I'm on lives, but uh, it was a it was a thing for Discovery Channel. We were doing this like, uh, you know. Rock buggy uh, guys in, you know, podunk country building these massive uh, engines, you know, eight hundred, nine hundred, thousand horsepower dune buggies to race them and go uphill and all that stuff. And so that's, that's what that whole sizzle reel that we shot was. And uh, this one in particular, we had filmed them going, I'm telling you, like an incline like this. I mean, it was... You know, and those tires are so big that when uh, if they kick up any rocks, like mm. I, I swear to God, right before even that even happened, we I was filming one of these buggies going up, and his tire was spinning so much, and he's kind of swerving, doing one of these things, and kicks up a giant. I'm telling you, like a giant, um, you know, timber log, and it's flying through the air, and it hits. Uh, a guy seven feet in front of me, right in the face, he gets knocked out, ends up with stitches all the way across. Mm, and, and so gosh. like w- when I did that series or did that show, uh, they would always tell us like, hey, when w- when they're racing, you get behind stuff, you get behind trees because they're going to kick up rocks, they're going to kick up debris, and you you always use the trees as like your protection, you know. And so I was where I was, I was on the side of the track where they said that they will, when they flip, they're gonna flip the other way. And so I was like, thought it was fine. And then the, obviously that whole thing happened, which I thought was crazy. Um, and then for the sake of the shot, my producer says, hey, go over here and get this from this angle. And I'm like, okay, not even thinking about it. So I walk over to the other side of the track and found a bunch of trees and I shot behind the trees, you know thinking like, oh, if it flips, it'll hit the tree or whatever, which is – I just didn't think it was actually going to happen because uh, I've shot a couple of these races already when it did. And uh, sure enough, the guy goes up. He gets up on his hind legs, and instead of doing what uh, you know those guys do, which I think would be to hit the gas when you're up, to hit the gas, it puts – the your tire here starts spinning, so it puts mm. your face back down. But instead, he hit reverse, and it flipped him. And the moment that happened, uh, because this isn't the first time I've been on like a, I was in a helicopter crash once too, and it was the same thing. I'm shooting, uh, you know, through an eyepiece, I'm looking down at the screen or whatever, and I'm zoomed in on something. But the way I was operating it, you know, it was basically with two eyes open. And then the moment that happened, and he started to do this, I immediately zoomed out on the camera. And you can see it in in the, I don't think it's in that demo, but it's probably somewhere around there. And I basically, from instinct, just point the camera whichever way I'm looking. Because I'm on an easy rig too, it's really easy. I just shift my whole body. And when I was in a helicopter crash, it was the same thing. Like I would look this way and I'm like, now I'm not even looking. I'm just kind of doing this and moving the, but I'm so wide you could see it. And uh, so that's ended up what happened. And I'm just holding on to that tree for dear life, hoping that it was going to, hit the tree. And of course it did. Everybody on the top of the hill thought I got, uh, crushed for mm. sure. And it was like, I <laughs> just, yeah. just kept going. And then right after that, we shoot all another scene and I'm in front of the guy and he does this hind leg thing. And like his tires are coming right at me. And then he, it, it's just, yeah, I've done some, I've done some stupid stuff when I was younger <laughs> I and mean, I still do, but yeah, uh, that was definitely a, the site well we it's are
0: definitely right. gonna loop in uh some of those clips just for the bts but i saw that and it was like uh like it makes you jump out of your seat because you think you're gonna get crushed and mm, dude you, yeah you had it uh, i
1: have to put it in there every time absolutely because everybody's just like what is this guy is not afraid of anything yeah <laughs> well
0: unfortunately you had a wall of trees but man we're we're glad you're okay and you're able to do this podcast <laughs> with us today Thanks. um but, definitely
2: nine lives like you yes, said man. Nine <laughs> andrew lives. nine lives yeah i
0: love it man yeah. well well dude we want to yeah man well tell us a little bit about what your business currently looks like right now and some of the things that you're getting into when you're not uh avoiding cars trying to flip onto you
1: um my business right now is uh almost non-existent i guess right because of the rider strike and Mm. everything else there's yeah i mean it's and it's texas it's the summer nobody wants to shoot in the summer yeah uh but the rider strikes have not helped with any of this stuff and sack strikes so like I think everybody's trying to just do what they can for work, but um, I'm gearing up for uh, an HBO Magnolia network series on barbecue, um, high school barbecue competitions and stuff. And so that's going to take place all over Texas over the course of like six months. So I'm kind of answering emails right now and then I'll go shoot for four or five days in Dallas or something. And then, uh, so I got that, I got a short film coming. Um, Yeah, it's, 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 pushing pennies right now so, <laughs> yeah man, know, the, i'm just being a dad at this point so. i
0: love it man yeah the rider strike we felt it over here i mean we do a lot of commercial uh work in corporate and try to get as much like narrative as we can but i think i have like f- at least three or four features right now that are being affected by the rider strike um or something close to that or i, I know it's tough out yeah. here but um even yeah, yeah even it. go ahead
1: Oh, no, no. You you go. go.
0: Oh, yeah. But I mean, even even prior to right now, um, I know that you have done a ton of like, you know, feature work, uh, doc work, uh, reality television. Um, How did you tell us a little bit on how you even just got into this industry, just so we can get a little bit of your backstory into just your journey into starting this thing?
1: uh it's funny i get that question asked a lot of times and it's not one direct route um the the quickest way the quickest way i could explain my start was i worked for disney world in orlando i got to uh be a pa on some of the disney world stuff so extreme makeover home edition and super nanny that kind of stuff and then worked my way uh, as a PA for a production company out in Orlando, uh, and then ended up becoming a, you know, DP when I moved back to Austin. So, uh, Disney was great, but it, it, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't film school.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs)
1: And not that you need it. And I think one of your podcast, like I was watching one of your podcasts talking about film school the other day. And, um, Yeah. You don't need it. It's just, you got to just do the work. Right. So, um, essentially that was my background is been documentary and reality shows. Uh, so when I moved back to Austin, you know, those don't really exist that much. I mean, now that, now that they do, but, um, so the bulk of my work has been doc related and I would say the last maybe 10 years I've been pushing more towards commercial, and, and, uh, scripted. So I think in Austin yeah. now people know me more in that, um, commercial world. Um, and, uh, and then now, you know, now that my, uh, kids are a little bit older, I can start pushing into doing more bigger narrative work yeah. than, um, I, you know, had the opportunity before. So
0: I love it, man. You well, know. and one of the cool, um, I don't, I'm not sure if it was a doc or a TV show, but you got to work for uh, national geographic recently, correct?
1: Yeah, I did a sizzle reel for a show that's out on National Geographic uh, Discovery Plus right now called uh, Never Say Never. And um, I got that call because I had done some work for the production company on a bunch of other sizzle reels. And they were like, hey, do you want to go to Iceland for a week and then go to Hawaii for a week? I was like...
0: Sign me <laughs> up. Yeah, <laughs> like, Sign me up. Yeah.
1: You do it, I'll do it for nothing. Right. So uh it it, you know so we shot a sizzle reel um for basically two weeks and then a year later they ended up selling the show and the show went uh during twenty twenty one or 2022 uh i was not on that the showrunner from la like hired his whole crew out to, to shoot it so um but they i guess one of their episodes didn't do very well on content so they ended up using the iceland uh, stuff in one of the series, which I think might be this Sunday yeah. if they air it. Um, so yeah, so that, you know, at least I get a credit for it. So yeah. a lot of the sizzle rules, if they, when they sell and you're not on the show, you don't get credit for the show, even though you basically yeah. created the show. So, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate though. They, they are, uh, the guy's a really great guy. I hope it goes season two, but that same production company is the one that I'm going to be doing this other gig for. So. You know, trying not to burn the bridges. Right. I guess when you get so mad is a is a, a yeah. thing to have. Yeah. So,
0: well, dude, I saw yeah. some of the uh, the locations that y'all did for that with just like these ice caves and whatnot, and it looked just magnificent. Tell me about man. Some if,
1: of- yeah, if you were ever gonna write another movie or go shoot a movie, I would shoot it in Iceland. Mm. It I, it makes total sense why every single big budget movie like Dune and you know i could name a whole list of other ones but the reason why they shoot there is because the sun never sets so it's always at a certain horizon so you got magic hour constantly and when you do when you do have magic hour it lasts for three hours in the Mm. morning and three hours in in the evening so uh it's just a dp's paradise uh for architecture and landscape and just everything about it it's there's no trees so you, you know you you, you seen for miles on end. Uh, Iceland's dope, and everybody there was like the the crew that we had had worked on really big stuff. And yeah. I'm sitting there going, like, I'm just shooting a sizzle reel for right. Nat Geo. This isn't anything. So uh, yeah, if you can go, I want to go back just to visit yeah. and take my drone and shoot some more stuff. Yeah. You know, but that's um, awesome. I, I wish we went there to go film the northern the 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 lights uh, for the series. And of course it was like the worst time to go for the lights. So, uh, what we got is what we got, but yeah. you know, I didn't get to see, there was no like great sunset cause it was rainy and cloudy all day and stuff. But in general, uh, Iceland is very accommodating and a beautiful place. Yeah. I'd love to go. I mean, high, uh, Alaska is kind of like that too, with the sunset stuff, but Iceland just has a beautiful landscape. Yeah. So.
0: Well, I know that uh, Iceland is typically the not as cold uh, country as Greenland. It's all backwards and whatnot, but it looked like where y'all went was really cold. And so I was curious, I mean, it sounds all lovely, but did y'all have like, what were some of the challenges with that production? Cause I know that when we filmed, uh, in like 13 degree weather, I think we've talked about this before, but we actually had the grease inside of our lenses freeze and like lock up right. like the entire production because of how cold it was. And so I'm curious if you guys had like any challenges just due to the extreme weather that it looked like you guys were in.
1: Yeah. I've, I've shot in extreme weather before. Um, uh i shot in snow and, and uh, negative degree weather and stuff like mainly with a red camera and uh, some other, you know, uh, FS sevens or whatever. But Iceland is uh, interesting because like you, you definitely, it doesn't really hit freezing all the time. Then certain areas it may freeze, you know, depending on your elevation. And then like, then you have really a lot of moisture because you're also on an Island. And uh, so you're dealing with like, multiple temperatures in the day basically and uh i took the uh alexa mini lf uh for the first time and i you know i'm sure they had shot a bunch of other stuff in iceland with it but i was having issues with not only the batteries obviously the batteries don't last as long and when it's really cold out but i was having issues with the evf finder fogging up mm. and not not going away for a day so i was sitting there with like a blow dryer and yep. trying to like get the evf yep. uh, to to do his thing or uh one of the lenses fogged up so doing the same thing you're taking a blow dryer yep. so hope, hope to god that you can get it so um you know you got you got those kind of challenges i think uh, which aren't typical but like you know when you, when you film in all parts of the country or the world or whatever you kind of can expect that these things are going to happen and you're going to get some moisture and some things you're going to get, you know, uh, things are going to get messed up and you just kind of have to prepare for it and hope, hope for the best, you know? So Yeah.
0: Well, you, you mentioned that you shot on the Alexa mini LF, And I know that Andrew is one of the only people that has a red Komodo as a webcam for his camera. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) I'm curious to know, um, you know, when you're prepping for a project, uh, how you go about choosing, you know, which camera that you're going to use, you got a red in your kit, you got an Ari in your kit as someone who's utilized both, how do you go and decide what the right camera is for the project?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, cause I'm working on that with like three other potential projects right now. And I think, a, uh, it, it's two parts. A lot of it has to deal with like the imagery that you want to capture, right? Are you capturing faces or landscapes, stuff like that? And then the other part is, can you carry all this stuff? And, uh, so that'll determine if I'm going to go Alexa or go mini LF or Alexa 35, you know, or, is it a low light situation? No, non low light. Right. So, um, like I'm, I'm prepping on a short film right now that like, we're, we don't have a huge G and E budget. Um, so we're going to probably go Alexa 35 and, and shoot more low light stuff to protect all of our blacks and our highlights and you know, all that. Like when I did Iceland, we shot everything pretty much on the mini LF, on the main stuff because it was pretty landscapes and a, you know pretty faces and so you wanted that shallow depth and all that but we had a backpack to places to to get there and so because of that i would put the mini lf in a backpack and carry that with me and hike uh but in between all that stuff we pulled out the komodo because it was literally you could hold it with one hand and shoot all the necessary stuff you need to get and then when you get to your content stuff you'd stop down Grab the camera and shoot the real things, you know. So it was a easy mix to combine those two things, and I've I've used those I've used that setup multiple times because one I like the mini I like the Alexa look. Obviously, everybody does, um, but the you know f- shooting in full frame for landscapes and for uh, portraits are beautiful, and so I liked to do that versus going just straight red. Right? I mean. I think most of the red stuff kind of all looks the same, whether it's 8K or 6K or 5K, you know, because it it doesn't really change the overall bokeh or look unless you change your lenses. Uh, But there is a huge difference between shooting on a mini LF and and an Alexa 35 when you're going into portrait stuff or when you're going into uh, landscape stuff. I think it really changes. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of factors that come into play when picking out your your gear, but I wouldn't say one thing is particularly better than the other. It's more about just w- what's going to make it easier for you and what's going to make your job better, right? Like, I, I would shoot on, if I if I could, I would shoot on a Komodo a ton, but or even a Red, but the problem is, like, when you have to get all the necessary stuff to have built-in ND filters, right? And Alexa has built-in ND filters, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to push to shoot Alexa on a, on a TV show, but it's like it's heavy. Uh, it requires all these other things. We're going to go uh, Sony FX9 or FX6, right? So it's like there's a huge uh, variety of, of situations that, mm-hmm. that you got to think about when you're going for those things.
0: That's great, man. I love all that insight. Yep. And and one of the things too that I think uh makes your kit unique is uh Andrew is one of the few people that has a full set of RE Master Prime lenses. So oh, I got uh
1: I well I, yeah. COVID has been um you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think I'm in. I think I'm in way more debt than I have ever been in. Uh, I, more than my house, and uh, yeah, it's like I own MasterPrize and uh, but I've gotten tired of shooting with them because it's the same look every time. And uh, when I ended up buying the mini LF, uh, I started combining my gear with uh, another business partner of mine who's also DP in Austin, and he owned. I own Master Primes. He owned Cook Anamorphics. Mm-hmm. and now, now all of a sudden, between the two of us, uh, I'll not to make anybody jealous, but um, if any project that comes my way, I pretty much have the pick of the litter of whatever I want in the in the lens category that we have, plus the camera category we have, versus going to a, a rental house. You know, like uh, now we have Black Wings. We've got. Um, cook Anamorphics. We just got the Lomo Anamorphics, which we shot on on your thing yep. when we were together. I ended up buying them because I ended up going and doing that Lithuania job yeah. and we wanted some vintage glass. They flare so uh, pretty. Flares, yeah. And then um, he's got uh, the Zeiss Supremes, I got the Master Primes, and then we both bought the uh, Signature Primes together. So, yeah, we got a set of like six lens sets and then... He's got a mini LF. I got a mini LF. Now we bought another mini LF. Now we each own two Alexa 35s, and it's you know it it's it's. Hopefully, I can get it rented out. That's what I need. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not selling everything. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: And I was going to ask, how often are you able to rent those for for productions?
1: Um, not right now because everything's right. slow. But I would say last year, almost every project that I was on uh, a camera and a lens set was going out. Love it for him. Same thing. Right. And then on top of that, uh, NPS, which is the rental house in Dallas oh. and Austin, they're sub renting our signature primes or the sub renting, the cooks or the nice. blacklings. And we got other people that I'm getting people yeah. right now asking for the Lomo's. And so yeah. it's, a, we've become a little bit of a boutique rental house. Cool. Um, and, uh, you know, Having the cameras, I mean, everybody's getting Alexa 35s, but having the cameras before everybody else did has helped. Yeah. And so we've all we've always been looking to like, okay, what's the next thing we can get? And it's like, we just got the underwater housing. So now we're the only underwater housing you can get in Texas for the Alexa Mini, Mini LF, and Alexa 35, Yeah. which nice. it, it's only been on one job right now. So we're just like, we'll sit here and hopes yeah. that this stuff makes money in four yeah, years. Yeah. And if it does, great, you know? Right. But-
0: i love it man well before i get off the topic of just prepping on projects i want to know if they're you know obviously when a script comes in for the very first time and we get a chance to look at it it's our job to interpret you know, the director's vision and help bring that to life as a DP. And so for other up and coming DPs, I was wondering if there's any um, ninja tips or tactics that you kind of use or could recommend giving to up and coming filmmakers when uh, prepping for a role. What are some key things that you do uh, as a DP to kind of, you know, best set up the project for success?
1: Um, One of the biggest things that I really like to use is shot deck. Which you know, I'm sure you you guys have obviously heard of, but that has been kind of a lifesaver for a lot of directors who don't have that uh, and don't don't know what it is, and then all of a sudden you're pulling out, oh I, I want it to be moody or with blue light, and then all of a sudden you have a plethora of stuff to use for for your images that you could use to as a pitch deck to sell it or to help them sell it, you know stuff like that. So, uh, I really love that. I mean, it's kind of what I was using to prep this next show that we're looking at. It was like, I like everything to look like euphoria. And so then I'm pulling up euphoria stills and you know, they did all the dirty work for you. So it's like kind of the easiest thing to grab. And then, um, so I use that, I use a ton of Instagram, man, uh, like as inspiration and, and just like pulling up every single, uh, bts of like how they shot this and like well on this script he the director's talking about doing a full 360 i'm like well how can we do that without a dolly or this and then you're just you know the the internet has been such an amazing tool in the last uh, uh 10 years five years for for dps that like it's really hard to uh be on top of it and and be um uh, I wouldn't say competitive. I mean, it's 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 very competitive right now, but it's even harder because of that because it's just everything's there and you can look it up. And so everybody's trying new stuff. And because of that, you're just going, oh, that's a really good idea. I'm going to use this. And then, you know, so um, I don't know. I yeah. mean, that's the best thing I, I I get out of, I guess. Yeah. For prep.
0: I was having a conversation with someone recently about shot deck, um, and, and just the double edge edge sword with it. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, we have all of these examples to go pull from and create a beautiful mood board and treatment plan and uh, pitch deck for a project. But then what I also find is that sometimes you as a dp wind up just going and recreating the shot because you have it in your mind uh from shot deck and you've already seen it and you're like oh i'm gonna do that how do you feel like utilizing shot deck has impacted your overall creativity on a project where you know sometimes you've i have found myself like just replicating uh what i've seen in the shot deck go by instead of like bringing something new to a project do you do you feel like utilizing Shot Deck has impacted the overall creativity that you add to a project and making it an Andrew original?
1: Um, not necessarily. I don't. I don't find that I end up recreating it exactly because I think the scenarios are always going to be different, uh, and your actors are going to be different, and it calls for different things. But to say that people get their inspiration uh, uh, from nobody but themselves is kind of crazy you know like musicians are the same way it, musicians rip off music from everybody and that's that's how they end up with their style and it's like well i took it from this artist and this artist and this artist and i used all of that to make just one piece and if you want to call that my style then great make it my style but um I would like to say that like, yeah, I've got one particular style and that's how I roll, but, uh, you don't stay busy if you are only doing one thing. And which is why I think when you're going through my list of accomplishments, I'm like, I do it all. And it's because one doing it all, you know, that whole master of none thing that I think everybody hears, it's like, it, it, it's nice to be perfect at one particular way of shooting or one per, you know only sh- movies or only this or whatever but being able to take bits and pieces from every other project and every other way of shooting i think makes your own style but also keeps you really busy because it, it means is as a dp you're very nimble to be able to uh, adapt or come up with different creatively something different that the director wasn't thinking about for this boring uh, shot that now I'm saying, well, I can take my uh, experience from, you know, this project, which has nothing to do with scripted, and then bring it in there to do that, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. So good. So good. Plus, I like I like money, so, you know, trying to <laughs> yeah. stay busy is the biggest thing. Got to right? stay busy. So, yeah. yeah, I agree. The yeah, experience yeah.
2: transfers over, man, and that's why I love – uh, we were in another podcast, you know, talking about people that had edited right before they DP'd or, or doing all of that yes. helps you be able to put the pieces together of storytelling and filmmaking and creativity um, together. So having that multitude of experiences I, and I've done a little bit of everything and, and I take, like you said, you borrow from that. And I think it, then it does kind of create your own style because everybody's experience is different in those as well. Yeah. So I like being yeah. a, 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 uh, a uh, master of none, I guess. <laughs> because I like doing a little bit of everything.
0: Well, and I think too, one of the interesting things about being a DP is like whenever you're first learning how to light something well and make it cinematic. <clears throat> and you kind of have like this style that you you grow into. And then as you master that first style, I think I have felt challenged to be flexible outside of that one look and like be able to shoot things two different styles, like giving something a Wes Anderson right. look or giving something, you know, a Greg Frazier look or, you know, whatever it is. Um, being a good DP is about having the ability to be able to implement different styles into whatever the script calls for. And so I think that that's one of the things that, um, you know, having that background of a, you know, versatile shooting styles and whatnot helps you be a better DP overall to serve the script's needs above everything else.
1: Yeah. And I, have been saying that to, to people for years that like, you need to go, you know, I, uh, sorry, I'm changing the ISO here. The sun keeps coming in and out and I keep looking darker. So.
0: It's getting uh, real moody over there, man. <laughs> I know, I
1: know. Well, it's the windows right here. But it's the best looking zoom call. Yeah, I love Um, uh, but you know, like I, I, have I've worked on projects where I tried bringing somebody on who doesn't have maybe a network show or network credit or whatever. And, um, uh, just so they can get the experience right of like, let's go and learn how to shoot it this way. Um, And a lot of people that some people in Austin that I've called on have been like, no, that's not, it's not going to excel me in my career if I do this gig. And I'm like, that's totally understandable. I totally get, however, if you learn it, that's the, that's the best way to excel in anything is on the job training, right? Uh, You're not going to learn it in film school. Um, and one, it gives you the credit. Now, all of a sudden, you got a network credit. You might as well mm-hmm. take it. But then, like, you can kind of see how things are done a certain way and then take that when you go into something that isn't that, you know, if it's, if it's a reality show and take that in your scripted and being able to kind of adapt and make it better because of what you learned on this. And, and it goes both ways, right? So um, having that experience, I think – you know, as a, as a startup, like DP or camera guy, like, don't just, uh, don't just be the person to be like, Hey, I just graduated film school. I'm a DP. That's what I'm going to be. And that's the only job I'm going to take. And it's only going to be scripted work. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Go for it. And if you, there are some people that can do that and, and excel in it, but you aren't going to understand how everybody else's process is in the long run, for every other possible gig that can come your way, unless you take those gigs uh, on on a smaller scale or um, you know as like a AC or a camera guy, you know what I mean. So yeah,
0: yeah, love it, man. That's some uh, ninja tactics right there for the up and comers. Take every gig you can, man, especially when you're building your DP uh, portfolio. Um, I, will,
1: I will tell you, the only, problem, the only problem that I've experienced with that is sometimes you do get typecasted. Mm. Oh, call him because this is what he does. Mm. And so you have to really work hard in trying to not just be that way, right? Like it has taken me a while to become more of a commercial DP than it is a documentary reality DP because everybody knew me from that, so nobody was going to call me for anything else. Uh, so you have to constantly try it. And I'm doing that right now with scripted, uh, you know, doing a a movie here and there. It's like, I can do scripted. I want to do movies. that's the most prestigious thing that you can get. And that's probably going to excel you further, but you know, you got to take the indie pay. You got to do that kind of stuff, but also like, uh, being able to branch out from doc and reality, to be able to do that is very, very hard, and you got to work at it to make sure that you don't get typecasted, but still do the other ones because you get paid. Yeah.
2: yeah, and experience, man. And I, I got to share this story. I was uh, this was probably like five, six years ago, but I got on the set of Hulu Warner Brothers Eleven Sixty Two. I don't remember the rest of the name, but it's the JFK <laughs> thing, and I and I just took a PA job. I took a and I'm I'm on set as a PA and I'm getting schooled, man, because it's it's like a Warner Brothers set and I'm learning so much and that's exactly why I did it. I actually, you know, didn't make that much money. Um, I worked like 18 hour days, but I saw how they did it, you know, and how they did it right on set and some things that I thought, wow, this could have been better. Y'all could have prepped us, you know, the green PAs for this type of lockdown. Anyways. Uh, And so that I still love that experience, even though I got my butt kicked. I didn't make any money, but I gained so much knowledge that then transfers over to the stuff that I really love doing, producing and directing, commercial content, documentary stuff, reality. And so having that experience and, and I mean, I love features. We've worked, you know, I've worked camera, gimbal, all that stuff. But getting out there on different sets uh, and networking, too. I made great connections on that set. Now, the thing is, too, I did kind of get stuck in that. They go, oh, you'd make a great uh, second or a P, uh, PA or a key PA yeah. or maybe even a second AD. You want to come up to Atlanta, and I'm like, ah, it's not really what I want to do. But, you know, you, you explore it and
0: see, uh, see what kind of connections right. you can make. Well, and I was
1: going to – Go ahead. ahead, ahead. I was just
0: going to say the networking piece is one of the big things to not overlook too. Like when you get to go out on those jobs, like you meet a lot of key grips, you meet a lot of other operators, you meet a lot of other people that can then refer you. And I think it's a super missed, you know, just a, a big piece of the equation, even how our paths cross. I was a PA on the production that, that we worked on. Um, I think, and I mean, that, that was what, three, four years ago at least. And I mean, today we're still in touch because I took a PA job. So.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and you're killing it too. So it's not like appreciate it. You didn't know anything. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, those. You know, like I think money always. Uh, if if the gig sucks, but the pay is good, maybe you know contemplate what you want to do there. Um, but if the gig's really good and the pay sucks, like see where do you think that this is going to help you in the next path that you want to take? Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know it's all the things that you got to think about when you're even DPing, because like there's there's a lot of times like I'm, uh, I think I sent you a video of uh, this outlaw TV thing. Is like I produced and directed that, um, and also shot it. Right, um, so you never know where things are gonna take you, but being able to learn everybody else's job or at least understand it. Uh, only makes you better and you can speak their language. That's the biggest thing. Because I I can't tell you how many times I've I've had phone calls with production managers or, um, you know, somebody in the producer world where you're trying to explain the stuff that you need to do your job, but because they don't know what any of the gear is or what it's even called or how much it costs, it makes your job a lot harder to even just communicate that, right? So being a producer, go and be, go and understand like the camera stuff and understand what things cost and vice versa, flip it, right. Do the same thing. I now, as a, as a, since I've, I've produced a whole bunch of stuff for years, I'm sitting there going, like I'm hiring a DP and I'm telling him what he needs and I'm seeing through some of the bullshit if he's going to pat it. Right. So then it helps you become a little bit better in in um, communicating because you know what he's talking about and you can either say yay or nay based on you know or come up with a better solution that maybe this person didn't understand beforehand you know so it just makes the process so uh, so much easier in that sense and just in the end a better successful um, um shoot you know
0: i love it man so much so much great wisdom and advice there Uh, You mentioned Outlaw TV, man, and that you produced, directed, and shot it all in once. Tell me about Outlaw TV, bro.
1: Okay, so uh, it hasn't come out yet, uh, but I I shot Monster Garage during um, COVID, so uh, Jesse James and I have kept in touch. He lives down the street from me, so it's been kind of one of these nice things, and he reached out to produce this uh, shoot for him uh, so he can go out and get money to possibly start this whole network. So right now, like that thing hasn't even come out. He's just now pitching this stuff, but uh, he called me to, to, to do this. And we basically uh, decided we were going to do a three day shoot. And um, I brought on another buddy of mine to help me co-direct it because co-DP co-directed. So we had on the shoot, we had three DP directors, which the crew kind of was not about but because of the intensity of what we were shooting and how much stuff was going on in multiple different places it made total sense and in the end the product that we got is what we ended up with that the the client loved i've got hours and hours of amazing footage and a bunch of like slow-mo stuff and anyways i can go on and on but um i be i became more of a producer director dp and then my other buddy was more the the creative director director dp and then on another friend it was strictly just you know camera dp just getting the stuff we need for this video and so we ended up with like six different videos but in three days i blew 150 grand just with toys okay Mm. i'm telling you it was like It was insane. I I reached out to FreeFly. FreeFly sent me their new slow mo camera Mm. uh, free of charge to just play with, uh, which was great. And then we shot on a robot. We shot on a black arm, uh, uh, Ukraine arm. Um, We had uh, a Trinity Steady Cam op. I mean, we had five cameras. Uh, It was just, it was was an insane shoot um, shooting it in the middle of the summer. But uh, everybody that was on that job knew what was happening because I like to communicate things to people because that's part of your job as a VP. Anyway, is to delegate and be a communicator and, uh, every, everybody, we walked everybody walked away completely, uh, in a, in a huge positive mode and I didn't have one single person, everybody, sorry, let me backtrack i had several people come up to me and say if this series goes i want to be on it because this is cool mm. and i would love to just be a part of this whole thing and it was great you know so i mean those are the that's the feedback you want to hear just on your own sets you know versus mm. like god like when we were talking about god do you remember that set that thing was stupid um so, you know, you, you gotta, it was, it was a, it was a good, uh, it was a good experience for everybody. Yeah. So, well, I'm hoping, hoping it goes.
0: Yeah. I watched the trailer for it, man. And it was one of the most beautifully shot trailers I've seen in a very long time. So hats off to you, bro.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, dude, you got an, you got another project that just came out, uh, with, with ja Morant, yeah? uh, John Morant. Yeah. Um, John Morant. The basketball player with Hasbro. Oh, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he forgot the the A list so celebrity that, that he know. shot on film. <laughs> I know. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I did a Hasbro spot. It was yeah. A, you know, it was a kids kids toy thing with John ja Morant. Yeah, and that was that uh, thing aired on like ESPN or something.
0: Yeah. So same. yeah, I forgot.
1: I forgot you're going through the stuff I sent you, but yeah, that was a that was a hectic hectic one day shoot.
0: Tell me about for working sure. with Ja, man, if you even remember who he is.
1: <laughs> um I don't have a whole lot to say about yeah. it because he was there for lit like he walked in with his entourage and sat in the chair and we hit record. Like there was no we did all the prep before he even showed up. So Word. Once once we hit and record, we're just moving and just shooting all the little bits we needed on these interviews. And then I'm like, okay, we need you to hit with the basketball. And then he's bouncing the basketball around. So we spent the entire first day uh, pure prep. And it was prepping, lighting, having all the cameras in the place. And then he shows up with his entourage. We shoot. He's there. He was there for 60 minutes. That was it. So two-day shoot or, yeah, two-day, one-day prep in that. And it was – the quickest shoot. It's one of the quickest shoots that I've been on where our our talent is not there for very long and it, it was all for him, right? I mean wow. I worked on movies where like the the major talent's there and they're but they're on the full set or they're on it for ten days or twelve or five. So you're dealing with them for a little bit longer. Like this was like you're there for 60, 60 minutes. That's all we get at him. And he's out, and you we're not going to do this again. So mm. you got to prep it and and make sure everything's perfect. So when he shows up, you're just you're just rolling at that yeah. point. So
0: mm. yeah, mm. that's super interesting, man. It's so uh, celebr working with celebrity talent. It's it's just a different world, man. They walk in, everything's got to be set, and you just knock it out, and you know, in and out, man.
1: Yeah, like uh, like I did that that outlaw TV thing. I did that with Paul Senior right? And Paul Senior's everybody knows who he is because of the memes, right? And Jesse James, I worked with him obviously several times. Paul Sr. is a very nice guy. And, but the moment he's on set, the producers treat him like he's a celebrity hmm. and they treat him differently. And so it forces everybody else to also have that same mentality and treat them like as, I mean, they are special, obviously, but uh, it's just like, it changes the mode a little bit, I think, you know, know, it's it's, like, Hey, we're all in it together. We're all in the film industry. We're all here to make magic and whatever. And yeah, you're the celebrity. You're the face of it. But, uh, I I don't like it when people treat them completely different as if they're, I don't know, like the president or something. You know what I mean? Like it just, it throws me off uh, a a lot. And, uh, I don't, I don't like the vibe of it sometimes, but mm. I mean, that shoot was great. He was really nice and uh was down to do whatever we needed to do but it was the people outside of him and me that were telling us we need to go because he says we need to go and you're looking I'm going like he's he'll, he's down for whatever you know mm-hmm. so it's like you always have the those the middleman i think overcomplicated sometimes mhm
0: this mm-hmm. is this is yeah. something that we can't as dps often have a whole lot of control over um, but how important is it to you when you're lighting subjects to light to the actual subject itself and not a stand in? Because so often I find myself lighting to another person, their skin complexions may be different. Their facial structure may be different and they get in the seat and then it makes me look like I was unprepared when the light is just reading yeah. totally different on this next person. So how important is it? And again, we don't have a lot of control over it, you know, oftentimes, but how is, how important is it for you to light to the subject itself? And why is it important or not important to you?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, uh I know on like big movies, they, they're hiring a stand-in that looks like them in skin complexion and height, right? Cause those are the two things that you need. Um, so when you, when you have that everything's great but when you don't understanding the necessary details on your talent i think helps like there are times i have to ask like what's their skin complexion are they super super dark are they more brown are they you know uh how tall are they all you know all those kind of things like what are they wearing right are they wearing a white shirt because that's going to change how it bounces this way versus you know, all your other stuff. So, uh, but the thing is, this is like, you're not always going to get that information. And so I always try to hope that I get at least five minutes before we start rolling with them just sitting there. Give me five minutes, let me tweak it and then we're out. But to do that, I have to be prepared that I can switch things up. Right? Like if I get in a low light situation uh, maybe not a low light situation. If I get in a situation where I'm pushing out all of my light on for the key, and I'm at a hundred percent on that thing, and then I, I don't leave myself any room to be able to dial it up more, right? Then I have to, when the guy sits in or girl, I have to like get a whole another light in there, right? So you kind of want to have a base, especially like on interviews or something like that, where you're you're maybe. Like uh, on a camera, you're changing your ISO instead of running it at the native, you bring down your ISO at you know a little lower and then you go 100% on your light. That way, if they sit in and they look too dark, you can easy, real quickly just bump it up just in your camera versus if you, you know, you got to change the light or got to put a new ND filter on. So, like, those are really quick and easy things that you can do to just prepare yourself to not have to take another 20 minutes to relight somebody
0: that's a super know. good ninja tactic man i always try to uh give myself some room on my iso i'm one of the people that i i rarely shoot at 800 iso on a red if i if i have to i try to live in that 320 space or 400 as much as possible um
1: yeah but, and you do it for your lighting too right? yeah you don't just run your light at 100 right light it at you know uh, 80 or something right. you know that way you can you have range and not just your camera equipment or your lens, but at least also on your lighting, you can yes. switch it all up.
0: Yep. I love it, man. I love it. Well, um, dude, quick question. I saw on your Instagram bio that you work as a local in New York, LA, and Texas. How how are you doing this? Are you just flying in for the job or what does that even mean? <sighs>
1: Uh, This is uh, also a running thing I deal with, with living in Texas is that because I am in Texas, um, I am not a professional DP. And, uh, so usually a lot of projects come into town and they outsource their DP from LA or New York all the time. I know people that live in LA and New York that lived in Austin before, and they work in Austin more now than anything else because they're in LA or New York. Right. So, uh, And every, every person that I do meet that's in the same industry that is like, if I worked with them in New York or whatever, they're like, Oh, I'm just couch surfing. So they'll fly to the project if the project pays enough and get an Airbnb or whatever. And I do the same thing, but I also have, I have friends in LA so I can stay in LA and I have friends in New York, I'd stay in New York or even in Orlando So it's kind of one of those things like I, the competition is while it's great, it's super annoying because you're going like, there are really good people locally that you can hire that need the work who can't get any of the good work because it's all of a name at that point. It's a name brand of like the location. Uh, you know, getting a Google phone that says you're from LA with an A18 number, that's like a trick that a lot of people do. And so I can tell you off a number of people that like they don't live in those towns or cities but like they just travel to to go do that because they're always going to want to have that local person when they're in LA or New York but when they come to non you know third coast or whatever like Austin they're going to want to have the LA or New York DP so like put it on there everybody does it everybody kind of lies a little bit on their resume and I'm not saying I'm a huge liar but like it is something I can work as a local do I want to take the work from those locals no but I want the appearance of like I am yeah. somewhat of a high end DP that you can call, and uh, I just I'm based in Austin, and, and it shouldn't matter at that yeah. point if the pay rate is like, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a day, and it's a six day shoot. I will fly my ass there totally, <laughs> and and you know like that's that's good rate and absolutely. So yeah, so that's that's why I mean it's on there for that. Uh, you
0: know, I love it. Yeah, no, it's great a, yeah, it a great strategy. It is a great strategy. I've seen
2: I've seen other DPs and filmmakers do that, and that that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's it's a great uh, tip right there. I know Joey's about to go. I know. Look at a Google eight one eight number. Yeah, okay. I'm, about to, I'm about to go
0: get three phones, one for the plug. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's 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 a it's a mind game. Like uh, it's the same thing with, and this was the with Rust right when, the, when that movie happened mm. is the. The perception of what a union person is and non union from some people is non union people are inexperienced, mm-hmm. and that was when when the whole thing with rust happened. They were talking about oh, it was a non union armor, and you know, so you're immediately thinking like non union, an inexperienced person. When in in, in contrast, it, like I feel a lot of union camera operators or DPs have very little experience because they can't get on union work uh, or only the union job. So like you look at their real and stuff and they're not that great. Right. Or they're very, very old um, or average or whatever. And so maintaining the perception of like being a professional. So like, yeah, I like, I need to go union just so I have that perception of like, I am a professional. But if I had that perception of like, I am an LA based or in New York based uh, DP People also think that if you're from those towns, you are, uh, a, you know a very experienced per, uh, in your field, and which is not the case at all. So because those those two towns, like they got thousands of people that all compete for the same yeah. stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like it, you live in Dallas, and you're like probably one of like four dudes that you're gonna people are gonna call, and you're gonna get all that work, right? So, yeah.
0: It's outside perception for sure that's 100 what it boils down yeah, to and yeah that, that sums I, it up thank you <laughs> uh, yeah no i love it but um dude i uh yeah. f- for there's a lot of you know up and coming dps that will listen to this episode um and obviously you have a plethora of experience to pull from is there any advice for the up and coming dp that you really feel like helped y- propel you in your DP career forward, that the up and comer can then implement that will help them.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, funny. I talked about this on another podcast recently. Is I when I was starting out, the typical thing to experience is people yelling at you and not taking it personal. Right, uh, you're going to get that all the time, and unfortunately. That's just been how, that's how, I'm not saying that's okay, but when you get into tight scenarios where you're being rushed or it's safety or something like that, and somebody's going to yell at you because you're doing either it wrong or something, people should not be offended by that. Because in the end, like, it has happened to me and the guy later when we're driving back from, I don't even know where we were. He was like, Hey man, I hope you don't take offense. Like I, that I yell at you at the, in the moment. It was just like, you're about to ruin my cables. And I was like, dude, I'm fine. You know, let's go have a beer. And that's usually like, unless you're awful at your job, then I'm not going to go have drinks with you. But, (laughs) uh, you know, but people that take offense that easily, like it's, it's just you're gonna have a hard time uh getting on other projects that i don't know how how to explain this um you know you're just i think you're just gonna have a harder time trying to like one get along with everybody and then not take it personally and and then you're just gonna always be down on yourself like oh i suck or this production sucks because this guy yelled at me and it's like you know, well, one of the things, never a good thing.
0: yeah, one of the things too, like in the middle of production, especially if you're a DP or a director or, you know, one of the keys, you have a lot of pressure that's riding on you to do your job. And there's a lot of dollars that's being, you know, put onto your, you know, the, sh- your shoulders and your responsibility to, uh, make sure it's successful. And when somebody is doing something that can ultimately damage the project, a lot of times I have found, you know, my, there have been a few times when I've had to rein myself back in and be like, look, this is a person and I got to let the stress of the project go. And I think it's something that easily happens when you're responsible for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, have an emotional moment of weakness more or less. And so it's just To your point, it's part of the process. And a lot of times, once you're cool and level-headed after the fact, it's like, dude, I'm so sorry I said it like that. It's part of the, you know, you can't destroy my stuff or you were about to unplug a light while it was still turned on. And you know what I mean? It's just things like that happen. And so, yeah. I
1: will will say, though, I say all that, but on the other end of that spectrum, I don't like working with people who are assholes. Like, it's just not it's this day and age that it is not something that needs to happen and it's just not it's not conducive for a good working environment anyway right and i don't i particularly don't liking don't like working with people that are like that and i don't want to hire people that are also like that because it just makes a bad environment and a bad experience for everybody and you know so my advice would be don't take things personal, but also don't be the asshole Mm. or don't be an asshole. Right. Those are the, those are the two biggest things I think that'll get you anywhere because like you may not be that great at a certain role in some project, but he's a really nice person and he's really great to work with because he makes the environment fun for everybody and the clients love him because he's, you know, very communicated and communicative, but, he uh, appreciates everything, and, and I think that just is going to go way further than than if you were just the biggest grump on set that you could possibly think of, and then you're yelling at everybody. I, I, I've worked on so many sets where that is the case, and everybody on set is grumpy, and it changes the overall mood of the whole situation, and it does change the quality of the work, mm. right? And then stuff ends up going by the wayside things get broken because people are pissed mm-hmm. or vice versa you know i don't i don't necessarily like working with people that that do that kind of stuff i think i used to be one long time ago but that i think is more important than anything else people
0: yep. like to work with people they like and it's that simple man if 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 you want to go far in this industry be a likable person. That's pretty much all there is to it. One of our pillars yeah.
2: at Cinema Story is experience is everything, and that's for the client, that's for the crew. And so we run a not like a strict set, but we're very careful and cautious of how we all communicate to each other because you know we've been doing this for a long time. There's always things that are gonna go wrong on a set, and if you're gonna, like you said, be an asshole or complain about it or or get frustrated yeah it only damages the project it really does mm-hmm. now you do have to have thick skin yeah. when you're on other people's projects for example that hulu set the ad tore up all the pas after day one and and we all deserved it because uh, we weren't you know we didn't nobody told us exactly what he was wanting and there was a lot of breakdown in communication but half the pas left and a second ad left mm. after that and then the next day I'm doing three people's jobs. Now I know what I'm supposed to be doing and doing three people's jobs. So it's like, you know, and this guy's from LA and he's like, look, I'm from LA and I don't know how y'all do it in Texas. But, and you know, I'm, I heard a lot of different uh, words and called a lot of things and it was just like, I get it. Nobody, I mean, I came back. I'm like, cool, I'm learning. This is great. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to take offense. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know if I'd really want to find this guy, you know, on the production yeah, hub and IMDB and work with him again. Right. Yeah, you don't
1: want to. You don't want to work on the next project that this person does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't care if it's like an opportunity to work on the biggest movie possible. I'm like, well, this guy was a complete asshole. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah, yeah. Now I I also say that and say like money has. a lot to do with <laughs> you If you pay me so, enough money, <laughs> I, you it's, will it's sell yourself. It's worth it for me not to care too much, right? Right. But, right. Uh, yeah, like if if you're if you're a butthole mm. on everything people are not gonna care too much about your project because mm. everybody there is getting a regular paycheck. You're more, as a DP, you're more invested in it because of the look of it
2: mm. with
1: your director in, in hopes that you're gonna get other work. But like, your G&E guy, they're gonna, you're one of like a thousand DPs that they've worked with. They don't need your shit, yeah. right? Yeah. So they don't care and they're not gonna care to work hard for you if you are complete. Uh, uh, Shithead to him. So uh, sorry, I don't know if I'm ruining all your. No, 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 <laughs>
0: it's all good. Um, uh, no, no, yeah, dude. And one thing I, I know we're uh, we're pressed on time, but one thing that you lightly just dropped in there is that you've been a part of a helicopter crash, and I got to know about the heli crash, man.
1: <laughs> uh, I did a sizzle reel that we'll never see the light of day, and uh, I'm in I'm in West Texas filming. Uh, the coolest thing I'd ever seen, which is these guys that fly the tiniest helicopters, uh, they're flying around big game animals to capture them. So they'll, what they do is they have a cowboy with a net gun and they're mm-hmm. shooting a net at an animal. And, and then they jump out, they jump 30 feet in the air to go and rope this animal. Right. So it's like the, it's the most insane cowboy stuff I had ever seen. And, um, uh, the way that these helicopters fly i mean you you're not just flying like a normal they they're banking like this but they're FPV doing it so fast cuz these <laughs> yeah these 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 uh these animals are going at 100 100 speed 100 miles an hour or whatever uh, 100% to get away from you and the helicopter's job is to wrangle it and corral them where they need to go and so you're just you're flying like a it's a roller coaster and uh, I'm in the back of a four person helicopter filming with a giant t- to tape uh, camera and it with an eyepiece. And I'm doing this whole thing, filming the, you know, I'm like, and uh, it was a very windy day in West Texas to the point when he banked. He, he, he went like this and banked to turn around. He, the wind had pushed him. And he lost lift. And it was the first time that this thing just decided to just go down. Mm. And uh, I, it wasn't a bad crash because we were only 40 feet in the air. So it wasn't like – it was It was a very, very, very hard landing. Uh, but I asked the pilot. I was like, well, it was a crash. He goes, no, it wasn't. We landed. I'm like, well, did you mean to land? He goes, no. I'm like, then you crashed it. And I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but uh, in the video, we basically – he, he was really good is what he ended up doing. And, uh, when you're coming down on the helicopter, he flared it, you know, he tilted it up and because of that, it softened our blow, but we, we hit it and then we slid across for a good, uh, 50 feet. Right. Wow. So then, you know, we're just doing one of these things. And, uh, once we got and landed, one of the guys got out, he went and looked at the, the helicopter and he goes, everything's good, boss. Got back in. Oh, we no. took off oh, and we kept gosh. flying. Right after that is we're filming. I'm filming a bunch of ram. I mean, a herd of ram going up a hill and these beautiful animals. And I put the camera down and I hurl right on them because I, I got so <laughs> airsick uh, just from that experience. And oh. uh, yeah, it's <laughs> oh my god. This is also how i got into drones in the first place because there's been so many helicopter crashes and i've been in helicopters for filming you know in alaska and colorado and stuff and in the end like i'm not in control of Mm. of flying so i don't like necessarily being the passenger Mm. so flying a drone is way easier and safer you know all that kind of stuff so that's how i ended up into the drone industry a little bit in that world that's awesome man Mm -hmm. do you have your part 107 yeah, yeah, I've had my part 107 for a while. I think I need to renew it, but yeah. I haven't done that in a while. They made the process a
0: super easy now, and I it was scary for a little bit, but now it's not too bad. But Yeah,
1: it's totally it's totally worth it. I, everybody should get it if you're a DP and yeah. you want to, you know, if you can do documentary, go get it because mm-hmm. it just makes it easier for yep. everybody. I
0: love it, man. So, well, dude, we have reached the part of the show where we get to our final five questions that we like to ask every single guest. So before we wrap you out of here, man, if you could go back and do it all again differently in your film career, what is one thing that you would change? Wow. I know we we, uh, we come in really strong with that final five questions, <laughs> but if you, if you could spare somebody else from heartache that you had to experience in your career what is one thing that you would do differently
1: um, I think I would have networked a lot sooner right uh, well maybe it's two things that plus maybe not getting a reality shows right off the bat but because uh, again it's it it's a lot harder to get out of it if you don't want to do it long term uh, but you know, the, the nice thing about people that go to film school is they keep in contact with everybody and they all work together. It, it It's a very, the only thing I think is valuable about film school would be the contacts that you make with people at such a young age, right? I didn't start in the film industry until I was about 23. And if I was in college at 18, I mean, you've already, you guys are four years ahead of me in that, in that world. And, Uh, while I won't say go to film school just for that, you know, it is probably the most valuable thing you will get out of it. And so, uh, I tend to work with a lot of people that have friends that are in the film industry and they are all doing big stuff. And I'm still in the process of trying to develop relationships with a lot of other DPs, other directors that maybe haven't heard of me only because, uh, I didn't start it, you know, way back in the, way back in the day. And I'm not a brown noser. That's the hardest thing. So, uh, <laughs> if you if you could do that and keep in contact with everybody, that's the that's your first step. Mm, I love it, man. I love it.
0: What is one thing right now about the current film industry or market that excites you?
1: Hmm. Give me a minute. Um, and I'm only. <laughs> I shouldn't have looked at any of your other podcasts. You guys talked about AI. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say that excites me. I think it scares me. Um, but I think it will make my job, uh, easier and more attainable to shoot cooler stuff because of just being able to incorporate that in your, in your scenes. Right. But does it excite me? No. I don't know. Um, <laughs>
0: Semi excited,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff with it, and if you're a, if you are an indie filmmaker or one man band situation, I think that thing is. I wish I had that ten, yeah, fifteen years ago, um, because I'm I'm I at this point in my career, I believe and I feel like I'm competing with people who are twenty something years old who have mastered the AI stuff in all that world. And you're coming up with amazing videos and amazing content that I just did not, I did not have any of that stuff. And so I'm having a harder time. And I guess it's a sign of old age of being able to keep up with technology and, you know, learn how to text when texting didn't come out, you know, that kind of situation. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't know that, I hate to bring AI up again, but I feel like it's a very relevant, what everybody's talking
0: about. Yeah. It's a relevant topic, man. And, And there is a scary side of it and there's an exciting side of it. And, uh, we have said in one of our earlier episodes, it is a tool that, you know, we have to adapt as filmmakers to learn how to leverage, or we'll get left behind in a lot of ways because it'll make jobs easier. Um, and it'll change the way jobs look, but I'd, I'm not as afraid of AI taking jobs away as us just having to get out of our comfort zones to learn how to utilize them. But I mean, we, we even utilize AI for this podcast and it's helped streamline this podcast. And I'm not ashamed to, to talk about it, but we use a, a software called AutoPod, which helps us get the bones for the podcast of this episode. And it's helped streamline our workflow. And we have to go back and double check it. And there has to be a human side of like QCing the process but it spits out a multicam edit for us to allow us the freedom and flexibility to output these things with less manpower. But we still have to have a man to go and work the AI to begin with. It just simpl it simplifies the process for us. And that's just one way that we've leveraged it in our own business. Well, the volume can go
2: up, but, but I am, I'm torn. I'm kind of in both camps because that's what, in fact, we talked about this on one of the other, podcast episodes i don't think it's dropped yet but we talked with a writer that is in the strike current you know lock up and uh it is taking people's jobs because the studios yep. want to use ai to write scripts now and then have a writer polish yep. it off so i think uh i think everybody's just trying to figure out how to navigate totally. those waters right and so totally. that's why i don't think it has to be scary if people do the right thing but you know people got to do the right thing yeah. as well and treat people right and so yeah let's th- count on that i
1: think that's I think that's the you know the whole point of those strikes right is right. to because it's a lot of the AI stuff and and all the the way the film industry is now it has a lot to do with the previous strikes from all the other stuff that happened before and while everybody is succeeding and I I feel like the film industry is amazing now than it was 10 20 years ago the AI the AI stuff that's happening if 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 the strikes end and they don't get the protections that they need, then we're in a whole nother ball game and it's going to be very scary for everybody. Mm -hmm. But if the studios cave and then the writers get what they need and all that kind of stuff, I think it just creates a new era of Mm. uh, content creation that utilizes AI for, as a tool for sure, but protects everybody. And in that way we're all on the same uh, playing field. Um, so kind of just waiting to find out what happens with that. Um, I think that one of the coolest things is I think it has come out of AI is with the LED wall stuff. Because mm. you're utilizing a little bit of AI to be able to help. Um, enhance. With, with, um, yeah, enhance all that stuff. And I got to go see the one uh, that's down here in... in um, in Austin. And it's just like, it's really cool. And you, the possibilities that you can do with that is just infinite. Uh, so I think, you know, I think in technology, that's probably the coolest thing is the led stuff, but mm. AI is definitely part of that. Right.
0: Mm. So love it, man. Love it. Where no. do you feel like we as an industry are heading right now in filmmaking and what should we be focusing on?
1: where we are in industry and filmmaking. Um, I mean, I guess turning point, I think, I guess like you mentioned Marvel it stuff.
0: with the, Oh yeah. Go into oh, I did. Well, I was going to well, say the writer uh, strike,
1: but, but yeah,
0: no, oh, going yeah, to the Marvel yeah. thing.
1: Well, I will tell you that my resume was written by AI and it, <laughs> it's great. Like I, I was helping, I was helping, um, a producer. She had a write. um, she written the whole thing about the look of the show or the you know the style synopsis of this or whatever she goes can you help me read it and reword it for more of a dp uh, lingo and sense and i literally in the middle of the night grabbed it took 5 minutes i had ai redo it three times which took all the course of course 60 seconds and she had a much better um, you know a much better paragraph per thing to explain it that gave it a little bit more emotion to it or whatever to and and you know i'm not a writer i hate writing which so for me it's great i love it but uh, you got to use it as a tool it can't be your you know everything right so i mean ai is just it's just copies of what we've already done so you've got to make your own new stuff so they can at least work with that right mm-hmm. but um uh, Uh, as far as the film industry goes, you know, I, I think right in this particular moment, I think people are getting really tired of, and this has a lot to do with the strikes. I think people are real tired of the Marvel, the typical, you know, superhero stuff. Okay. It's overplayed, man. It's done. You know, I think every new superhero thing that's come out has been crap, uh, in, in, In in writing, mainly. Not really cinematography, just just in the writing. And so, hence the writer strikes. And I think there's a lot at stake if they can get it. Because, you know, I don't know if you ever played with it in that sense. But if if AI writes uh, something, that's it it just lacks the... It
0: lacks a soul, man. There's no soul in the writing.
1: Exactly. And so, that has a lot more at stake than anything else. Yeah. You know, like everybody loves the being an actor and everybody loves being the DP, but like the writers are like the soul of every mm-hmm. process that's happening. And if, if they don't get it, if they don't get what they need out of this whole thing, like we are going to be in a whole nother ball game that I don't think anybody's ready for. I mean, we're seeing it, we're starting to see it, especially with social media and using AI for all that kind of stuff. But If, if, uh, if we all of a sudden start having AI write full blown scripts, it's going to suck and people aren't going to go and watch these things because there's not going to be any depth to it. And so because of that, I think what will end up happening is just like Marvel is right now, people are going to be so tired of it that they're going to start, you know, making something better, more emotional or, you know, have more depth to it and then ai kind of gets pushed to the side and then all of a sudden like well this is the real stuff we'd rather watch this I so that. i don't know yeah no like, I think it's that's a super huge good. theory it can go anywhere yeah
0: you know? i love that i haven't actually heard anyone put it that way but i really enjoy that perspective and i hope that uh the writers get what you know all of the the demands that they're demanding because i think it'll be better for yeah, the film it- industry overall
1: a good example of that would be like, you know, any movie that comes out, right? And you're looking at it, you're not really having any movie that is a Marvel or superhero movie that's winning awards. People I think are getting tired of that and so now you're starting to see a resurgence of original stuff come out that people are really interested in and wanna see it and then all of a sudden that's the route it's gonna take, right? That's why Oppenheimer did so well, that's why Barbie's done so well because it's like it's not a superhero movie. Now all of a sudden the movie theaters are Hacked Yeah. Because it's something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I love it,
0: man. Um, what is one piece of advice you can give to filmmakers trying to grow in their craft or their business?
1: Don't be an asshole <laughs> <laughs>
0: covered already yep. in detail. Love it. Um, last question. Uh, go, go ahead.
1: No, no, that's it. Okay. Okay. I love it. I love I'll it. Keep it in that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, last question for you, brother. Who is the one filmmaker that you admire and why?
1: Hmm. Um, man, I'm really Christopher Nolan right now. I've been Christopher Nolan for a while and, um, you know, say what you will about like tenant and a couple other, you know, like Dunkirk or whatever, but you know, he's come up with really original beautiful imagery and beautiful, uh, stuff that I think, um, people don't give him a lot of credit for. Right. I, I mean, Really, bringing it back to uh, superhero movies, he is literally the reason why we have Marvel and all those other things. Because he Batman brought trilogy. and he did the Dark Knight, man. And that was like, what is this? This is not a typical superhero thing. Mm. And now all of a sudden we're getting Deadpool and like really dark, you know, Joker, yeah, mm. for instance. And uh, so he has created a whole industry that didn't exist before. On, on that front, and you know, my favorite movie is uh, is Inception and and um, uh, Interstellar. Like those Dude, are my two favorites. I am
0: such a big fan of Interstellar. I slept on that movie for so long, and I watched it late, and it blew my mind how good that movie was. I am such a fanboy yeah. of that movie
1: <laughs> to this day. It's still, you know, like and with Inception, he even brought it into just the music, right? Yes. I mean, I don't know if you like that one soundtrack is slow down and sped up. That is the whole movie. And you're going like, there's and and it, and that song is the soundtrack that they play in it. So it's yes. like, he goes into more detail than you could possibly ever think of. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Oppenheimer too. I mean, there's so many nuances and stuff that you're seeing that you're not even really noticing that is that the process and like everything else that's going. So like, I think he's a, I think he's a genius, you know. But yeah. uh, I did I like uh, um, I did not like Dunkirk because I am a I, I like a linear path in timelines, and so Dunkirk was like all yeah. over the board. He shows right? like
0: his like uh, timeline thing in a video, and it's like very yeah. back and forth, and yeah, Dunkirk was Tenant- it didn't feel like a Nolan film for me. I don't I don't know why. I just it didn't feel like his original yeah. secret sauce was in that mm. one.
1: You know, uh, 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 the thing I didn't like about Dunkirk was like, just even the uh, spitfire scene where you're in the airplane yeah. and it felt so real to me yeah. for any other world war two movie that I've seen. And it just like, it's so CGI would that thing was like, he literally created the actual plane and then they yeah. did some stuff to it. You know? So like, I, I really appreciate his use of practical effects and 100%. have that be the bulk of everything. I mean, I, you know, Oppenheimer had one CGI shot in it, and it was because they had to cover, yeah. they had to cover up uh, uh, Florence Pugh's uh, naked scene in yeah. India or whatever, mm. right? So, like, what's mind-boggling to me about him is trying to figure, understand how he shot Tenant, and then that one, I uh, still am very confused about Tenant, yeah. but. How like i i need to dive into that yeah one and be like how did you do yeah. this man because <laughs> one of the crazy so, facts anyway.
0: about nolan too that i found out is he planted 500 mm-hmm. acres of corn to shoot his cornfield chase scene and i'm just like the level that nolan goes to to execute his shots and do in-camera practical effects in s- solitude like Is is so inspiring as a filmmaker.
2: That was Interstellar, wasn't it? And I think uh, rumor has it that he made money after that he he sold the corn (laughs) and then made money. Like, what a genius. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's how filmmakers should be done.
0: Yeah. I love it.
1: Right, right. You got to have all your. you know, all your financial, how many financial streams you have going on. He he has his movie stream, but then he like uses all the other parts of the movie to sell. I'm also
0: a farmer, right? (laughs) Nolan, the farmer, man, he's got a very successful farm career. (laughs) I love it. Well, bro, this has been an amazing episode, man. We really appreciate you giving your time, your expertise and and wisdom on this episode, man. It's been great to reconnect and, uh, we appreciate your time for those that want to get connected with you, man. What is the best way to get in touch?
1: Uh, I would say Instagram, um, but I am old school. So email and website and phone number. Right. But, uh, you know, I'm starting to get more Instagram stuff, so I got to keep up with uh, y'all zenials or uh, Gen Z guys. So, um, yeah, no, no, seriously. Thanks for having me. I love doing these things. So, Yeah, man. I mean, every DP likes talking about themselves. (laughs) Relatable. Relatable Uh, indeed. That's true, guys.
0: (laughs) Well, man, thanks again for uh, joining us on this episode. It's been a blast. Great connecting with you again. And we will catch all of you guys on the Rough Cut Club next time. So stay tuned.